Let's get started. Master man walk down before 
you call him a man? How many seas must a white dove sail before she sleeps in sand? Isn't how many times must the cannonballs fly before they fall ever banned? The answer, my friend. Is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. Isn't how many years can a mountain exist before it is washed to the sea? Yes, and how many years can some people exist before they're allowed to be free? Yes, and how many times can a man turn his head and pretend that he just doesn't see? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing. Welcome, everybody, to Curiouser and Curiouser. I'm Sariu, and it's Saturday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, we missed last week, which was Wednesday. Uh, I was away. And so we've got a makeup session tonight, uh, and we also have a great show coming up tomorrow uh, with author and financial journalist Ed Lynn. There's a little bit more about that in the show description. Um, but today's a very special show because we are interviewing uh, somebody that has lived through the history of this country, uh, as well as those of uh, several other countries. Um, and has been uh, distinguished in many areas of her life and career, uh, almost uh, in, in many cases being the first woman uh, to do anything uh, in that particular area. Um, and uh, she also happens to be my mother. So uh, if nothing else, this is going to be a good laugh for people, uh, But because uh, you're going to see the interaction between me and her. But um, I did want to, uh, in all seriousness, have her uh, chat a little bit uh, about uh, her experience and journey through the United States since she's been here from the 60s uh, as an academic 
uh, in the business world, on the boards of uh, some major companies, uh, as well as uh, other uh, institutions. Uh, but I will let her weave her story into uh, her uh, uh, retelling of uh, the America that she found and the changes she's seen from the 1960s onward. Um, we have titled this show Journey Through America, uh, and we will see how far we can get. I have suggested we do the 60s and 70s tonight, but we might have, uh, uh, we might wander into the 80s and 90s, and if not, uh, if we can neatly package it to 60s and 70s, we'll do 80s and 90s in another show, but uh, we'll see where our conversation takes us, because as my mother has told me many times, you don't script conversation. It goes where it goes. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce and welcome my mother, Dr. Mangalam Srinivasan. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Sariyu, for this honor that you consider uh, inviting me uh, to share my experiences. I'm a little bit um, hesitant to um, enter this. As you know, we may get into some kind of a situation, which I would like to avoid. But in any case, I'm honored and thank you for considering me. And let me begin by saying, uh, let me begin by saying that I arrived here in the United States at Honolulu Airport, June 15th of 19. 66. I came from India. I had just gotten married. I left by myself, having received the East-West Center Fellowship, which is a Fulbright program for cultural exchange at the University of Hawaii, to do my further graduate work. And I arrived, uh, when I arrived in Honolulu, at the airport, Dr. William, John William Holmes and Mrs. Zelda William, Zelda Holmes were waiting for me with lace in their hand to garland me. And I was dressed not only in the beautiful Indian sari, but also some tribal wear, uh, tribal ornament, tribal clothing, only because the uh, airplane would not allow me to bring more 30 pounds more in my luggage. So I took out the costume and wore it and took out the um, ornaments and wore it. So here I was arriving in a hodgepodge of costumes and sari. And as Honolulu in um, newspaper described it later on, I was getting down from the plane uh, to the tarmac with my um, sari um, flowing in the wind. And Dr. Holmes, John William Holmes, was my host family, he and his wife, having served as a World Health Organization uh, doctor in Velour in Chennai. They wanted a girl with a Tamil-speaking person from, the ch from Chennai. Here I was. So... So did you, so when, a couple of things, why did you come, why did you choose to come to Hawaii from India, number one? And number two, so you were bringing all sorts of costumes along with you because you wanted to share different parts, I guess, of Indian culture or whatever. 
in, a, in America. And when you came to the airport, it was too heavy. So they asked you to dump some weight. And instead, you just opened your suitcase and put everything on and got on the plane with everything, right? Correct. Okay. That's um, about it. And so you got off the plane basically wearing Indo, tribal, all sorts of things. So you must have been quite a sight to see. Uh, I, I indeed was. And I was also sharing what that was because I was going to do all those dances uh, in Hawaii. The reason I came to Hawaii was I had other opportunities, including at Harvard. And I had... Uh, Columbia, too, I think. Columbia, right? yes. This was the uh, 1960s. Right, and Cambridge University in England, uh, which I did not. I wasn't interested in going to England. I wanted to go to come to America and see the dynamism. I had already read many things about America, so I was... Uh, coming. And why didn't I accept the other universities? Money. And the East West Center scholarship was uh, uh, quite good, luxurious. And uh, so I thought that uh, I should use that to come to the United States. And after all, this is an area that I had not thought of coming. And that really energized me. And so here I was uh, in the uh, United States, getting into uh, the plane to come to Hawaii. And John William Holmes, a very tall, handsome man, and Zelda Holmes, a very tall, very good-looking woman from the uh, Midwest, they were so pleased to see me. And they were living in the former governor's mansion on the Mount Tantalus with beautiful gardens. They drove me to the East-West Center, with a Japanese garden and a huge, huge hall with piano, etc., etc. So I was very happy. The only problem with my coming was I did not have a single dollar in my purse. I would have probably exchanged about uh, uh, my rupees in India, which wasn't much, uh, to about maybe twenty-five to thirty dollars. But the Indian government that weekend had devalued the rupee and closed the banks. So I could not even have that money, pocket money in my hand. So I arrived penniless to this country. Weren't you scared? No, I was never scared. It was so exciting. No matter how I would have come here. And so... So you saw it as an adventure, unlike me who would have been... You know, I think take more after daddy, I would have been really scared without money in my pocket. But you were excited and thought about it as a big adventure. Yes, I thought that I could always get money, but I wouldn't get the kind of adventure that I was seeking. So the first point that I needed to go was, and I was told this very beautiful, there were about uh, um, other fellows from... 16 different all Asian countries and Polynesian countries, Japan, and so on. I um, came into the um, university and to the beautiful um, um, dorm, um, which was adjacent to the Japanese garden. And I should just interrupt and also say that you came from a tropical climate to another tropical climate, which must have absorbed some of the shock for you. If you had gone to Colombia or somewhere else where it was cold on the East Coast, I think it might have been a very different experience for you. Because didn't you also just come with sandals? You didn't have like shoes? Uh, uh, yes, I had uh, no gear, no winter gear, which would have been the case even if I came to Boston because I had no idea. 
uh, I uh, had, uh, you know, went to the university, to the, settled down, but then I had to go and the, my scholarship had not been processed, had not come, no money had come to my hand. So when I was going to the cafeteria, they asked me what meal plan I had. I didn't even understand the so-called meal plan. So I couldn't buy anything. So I was really hungry for the first uh, seven or eight days until I got some money in my hand. So what was I eating in those days? Just go to the cafeteria and pick up these little uh, one-inch boxes of um, um, coffee mate. Creamer? Creamer made of artificial you were something or the other. I was drinking creamer three or four I would pick up because that was uh, uh, free and sometimes some crackers and so on. So this was about my first 10 days of Hawaii. And uh, myself and then I had a roommate, uh, an American girl, and uh, initially... I think you should tell a little bit of that story, maybe just because you have brought it up to me as a cautionary tale. Well, I uh, had a, a roommate from Texas, um, very nice woman, uh, but she wasn't quite interested. And all that she was, asked me was what kind of a place I'd come from, how poor I was, uh, did I have, have I ever seen this, that or the other... So it was usually the thing that Americans think about when they think of India, dusty, humid, sultry, poor, and so on. So anyway, I was not intimidated because I was so excited to be where I was. So, um, but then every uh, day, it was a very, very hard day for me because of the noise, the things around in the house, in the, um, uh, everywhere in the room, and, and then... Uh, she also cried a lot about this boyfriend, <laughs> that boyfriend, and he jilted me and so on. Come back at two o'clock and then made such a big rackers and then she'll call her mother and there'll be argument. And all of this was much too much. And well, then... that's, I'll just interrupt and say, that's the advice you used to give me. You were like, oh, this woman did everything that the boyfriend wanted. You know, if he was into shooting, she was into shooting that week, then she would get broken up with. And then if he was into basketball, she'd be into basketball. So the advice you used to say to me is, you know, just be your own person, you know, which I would have done anyway. But um, I just thought that was interesting because I remember in my teenage years, you used to tell me this all the time about that roommate of yours. So uh, she um, was really a very nice person. She even invited me to be her guest in her. Uh, I forget the town where she came from. So in any case, then I ran to the foreign um, um a student's officer and told them, please give me another roommate because it'll be difficult for me when I begin my work because it's very disruptive. I go to bed around 9.30, 10, I wake up around, uh, you know, 4.35. This would not work for me. And I feel so you sorry. basically couldn't take an American roommate? Uh, that is roommate. not, I, no, I wouldn't say that because I knew later on many Americans in the university who were really excellent people, excellent. She also was an excellent person. Just that, you know, it was too disruptive coming from where I came from with a lot of discipline in the house and a lot of quiet time. So I uh, then I got a huge uh, bonus uh, in my new roommate. My new roommate was Yasuko Kitano from Japan, Nagasaki. 
and uh, her room was so beautiful it was overlooking the japanese garden with a little creek flowing through the rocks with all these uh, colorful fish uh, swimming in and out and japanese um, plants and uh, it was just it was so idyllic and i was staying with her and she was just the opposite she told tiptoed around in the and she always asked permission when she was leaving the room coming into the room she said may i come it was her room i just came in there but she would ask my permission and she would finish her dinner by 7 she would work and 9:30 she was off she said i'm so sorry i'll have to go to sleep now and so on so it was but then it was really as it should be now while i was trying to find out uh, american way of choosing your various subjects and uh, registering which is not the way we do in india so it's all chosen for you by the university by the teachers they will send you to what you they think you should be doing given your transcripts your ability and so on so here i was running up and down miles walking and so on and then we all decided uh, to take a trip to hanama bay which is on a high um um uh, high road Uh, from the sea it was about maybe 25 feet above uh, the sea level at that point so we all parked and got down and myself yasuko and all the other people were standing uh, facing the camera with our back turned to the uh, ocean and the next thing we knew was i was in the pacific ocean what had happened was a tsunami of 20 feet high engulfed 20 of us and dragged us many hundred feet into the ocean and because it was a rugged beach at that point we also suffered injury i was the one who suffered the most so that was a tsunami case well since then it has been one tsunami after the other and of course then harvard then it went down very quickly from one thing to the next so but that i would come later on so i hear uh, this was the place so then the uh, the courses began immediately when the courses began i started taking uh, originally i came to do something else a phd program i cancelled it and went into the business school and i asked the dean that i must now i'm changing it to mba he said well you seem to have a background in apart from mathematics and physics uh in banking and so okay we we'll admit you let me just interrupt you you also when you were in india you took and this is something that not a lot of people know you took those exams right those national exams and you came out number 1 in many of them yeah in mathematics and physics and english literature and tamil which is my language and hindi and urdu which are not my languages languages of some 1000 miles from my place or 2000 miles but in all of that i was mostly on top of the class so you were you were quite a brilliant student and you also had had i think it it warrants mentioning that you had actually been on a career trajectory in india you didn't sort of come 
as many immigrants do, seeking a better life. You already were one of the first women at the State Bank of India. You had been, uh, as I mentioned, a sharpshooter in your, I forget what that, that is. the uh, National Cadet Corps. You were a performing artist. You were already a college lecturer. You had talked. So you were uh, quite brilliant. I know when I had gone back, uh, you know, many, many, many years later, uh, to help launch Intel Capital's fund there. I didn't mention who you were, uh, but people that came to find out that you were my mother would immediately say, oh my goodness, you're Mangalam Srinivasan's daughter. They would say, oh, she never should have left India. She would have become the prime minister or the head of the Federal Reserve. Or, And that, that was something I would hear often. Um, even my partners at Intel Capital were often like, oh my goodness, you didn't say who your mother was. She's quite a big shot, but you know, you don't really talk about that piece. So when, yes. and I'll just, I'll just say that. So when you came to Hawaii, it wasn't like you were sort of coming like, Oh my goodness, I'm coming here to get educated. You already had quite a bit of education, well, several master's degrees. Correct. You. And yeah. not only that, what was interesting In was the 1960s. that I um, uh, already had read probably the only person who came to America who has read uh, the uh, Edmund Burke's speech at the British Parliament on taxation in Massachusetts without representation. One of the most boring books by Edmund Burke. Edmund Burke, but it was one of the most important uh, lessons of history uh, of the United States. Uh, Edmund Burke was not a pro-India person, was not a friend of India, but he was here talking about uh, the rights of people uh, to be taxed and not to be taxed and so on. But So I was quite, uh, I'd also read the Communist Manifesto by the time I was in my teenage years uh, by Karl Marx and Engels. And uh, did I understand them? That's a different point. But I had read all of these things. Everything was in my mind. But once you come here, you have to sometime act like you're a dumb person. You're coming here for the first time and, and people would ask me, where did you learn your English? And this is forgetting the fact today India is the largest English-speaking country in the world. Yeah. And uh, so... And uh, I don't think it, things it, have changed much in that respect. No. And, and if I can also just quickly say, I do remember when you were uh, at Tufts restructuring the engineering program and you said one of the secretaries who was Vietnamese one day came to you and wept and said that she had been a judge in Vietnam and somebody of some import and... May I correct that? That yeah. was in the World Bank. Oh, okay. Okay. I thought it was at Tufts. No, okay. it was All at right. the World Bank. And uh, she had been a judge in Vietnam and here people were asking her about her English. Did she, you know, how did she learn her English? And so I think there is a, uh, a story of immigration, uh, which is like many people are coming to just seek a better life. But there are also other immigrant stories where people have come equipped and ready to hit the ground running and contribute to this society. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so, but that, that, that's not a story that's often told. Uh, no, it is not. In fact, many in my, um, in my program, there women, men and women like that. And so I was not unique in that, but I was probably the most, if I may have to say it myself, exemplary because I was one, 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 one in yeah, everything I did. Yeah. That's true. And there is one person whom I thought was much better than me, but I, by fluke, uh, I felt that was I was put on number one. But uh, be that as it may, 
I, when I arrived here, uh, I immediately went and uh, I was accepted uh, to do my MBA. Thereupon, the first course I took was he, uh, Hawaiian chanting. <laughs> Hawaiian. And then the next course I had uh, signed up for was Hula. And then afterwards, uh, fauna and flora, plants of Hawaii and immigration to Hawaii. You name it, I was taking. And the dean was so perplexed. No, I said, no, no, I'm not going away from MBA. I'm doing everything. This is on my own. They said, how do you think you're going to handle this? I said, that, isn't that, Dr. Michio, my problem? When I know that I can't handle it, I will not give up uh, my hula. I will give up my MBA. He laughed and he said, that is what we like to hear in Hawaii, yeah. that you care for us. But anyway, uh, it was uh, interesting. But by the time my first year, and I also took German from a German teacher, and uh, uh, a German teacher, and I, was, I had a wonderful time visiting Dr. and Mrs. Holmes back and forth into the mansion, uh, governor's mansion, from which you can see the whole canyons uh, of hundreds of feet of glass windows and flowers and so on. I had uh, about six months into the, uh, my life there. Of course, after the tsunami, I forgot to say, we were driven to the hospital uh, in an um, ambulance. And my roommate, uh, Yasuko, was not injured, but I was thoroughly injured. Anyway, that was a good thing about And then in the old belief in Hawaii is you don't... Uh, uh, turn your back to the ocean to the ocean because the goddess is watching she doesn't like that yeah so uh, in any case uh, I um, uh, in six months time for five months into the uh, matter my husband joined me he at that time had already was going to University of Toronto to the Department of Electrical Engineering for his PhD program, oh. graduate work, and I he stopped in Hawaii, and Dr. and Mrs. Holmes and I went and uh, received him. We stayed at uh, uh, the Holmes's place, and uh, then uh, he said that in about uh, two weeks' time, he will have to head toward Toronto, and Dr. Holmes and Mrs. Holmes said, no, that cannot be. You absolutely, you just got married. You have to stay here. We'll see what we can do about it. Since Dr. Holmes was one of the most distinguished citizens of Hawaii, he immediately contacted the Castle and Cook uh, plantation and uh, uh, people and told them that if we have an electrical engineer here, and he told the Hawaii bank, and he said, I think you should give him a job. In those days, they wouldn't just like that give you a job. They will put you on an apprenticeship without pay until they have taken everything out of you and then they probably will come up with something. But in any case, that gave him the visa to continue to stay in this country. The sad part of it is he had to uh, resign the Toronto offer with a good um, uh, teaching assistantship 
at the University of Toronto and stay here. But he never regretted it because Hawaii was so beautiful. And we, we found a beautiful little cottage walking distance of Honolulu, um, University of Hawaii, on a little mount, little hill, and a beautiful Japanese cottage surrounded by um, all sorts of plumeria and stuff. Uh, plumeria, jasmine, and uh, then um, chimes. Didn't he, for that job though, that job was pretty tough on him because he had to get up, I don't know, he had to get up really early, like at two he, in the morning. He, he and... would get up at two in the morning, walk to Alamona Center about uh, two miles, and somebody coming from the other side of the island would pick him up, drive him to the other side of the island, and where he was doing just uh, looking at the electrical systems, making changes there, and so on. Then he will be dropped back at the same Alamona Center around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. He will have to walk back. And so it was very tough. He didn't have a, a money. My money was just enough to pay the rent and a little bit money left over. Uh, but I still gave my, uh, all my other students came and had a, a, the most beautiful food I can give, which was really... You mean your classmates and stuff? Uh, yeah, all the other people, classmates. Basically, at that time, you can't get too much of Asian food, but then some noodles. Yeah, so, so just really quickly, what did you, in coming to Hawaii from India, uh, and then we'll maybe move on a little bit to the mainland, but how did you, what sort of foods did you find there? What was America like? What? And I know Hawaii is a little bit of a outlier because of the composition of the islands, raci racially, culturally. It's not like the mainland. Uh but Correct. so you must have thought that this was what America was like. Uh, no, I uh, no, no, I didn't. Different. I didn't. Uh, but I just knew that uh, this was a different place. But it was. I wonder sometimes if there is any place more beautiful than Hawaii. It is. It's also the nature of the people, the love, the smiles, the the flowers, and uh, the hospitality, and the fruits and everything else. So there were many Asian vegetables, Asian. Uh, sort of uh, places, so it was very good. Uh, but I finished my uh, MBA. In between, I did a lot of programs, many, many cultural programs. One of them was at the University of Hawaii Auditorium, which the chancellor of the university himself presided over, of dance, music, and so on. Uh, several dances, including tribal dances. I worked with the, uh, the Bishop Museum, uh, also giving a lot of programs, so I became quite active and popular. I finished all my work and then went to uh, Dean Michio, having saved money uh, by uh, finishing it in record time. And I told him, I think you should graduate me now, so the rest of the money I would apply to go to the mainland. He told me, let me look at it. He looked at it and I said, yes, indeed, you have fulfilled all your requirements and even more. Uh, and uh, you have also taken every Hawaiian course. But the only course you didn't take is macadamia nuts. How come? <laughs> I said, I didn't know about macadamia nuts. If I had known, I would have taken uh, yeah. my uh, macadamia nut course. So, but you were never, I think that you were just such a good student and stuff that you, it was always about learning for you, which is also very interesting because I think that is also something that's very different about American culture. Most of the things people would be focused on is what they can use transactionally to get ahead. 
So it would be business, economics, you know, taxation uh, in college, because even though they say liberal arts, mostly everybody's taking classes towards, if they've already understood, uh, towards some utilitarian. Sure, but that shouldn't surprise you. The culture from which I came in the far south of India, my community, my people, what is it we are about? It's about knowledge. Who who are your people? (laughs) Well, how we can get more knowledge. No, but I mean, when you say your people, it's in the south. I mean, you mean your... Well, southern Tamil, uh, with the, you know, it's a... Uh, today it's not popular, but it does, has to be said. It's a Tamil Brahmin communities. Yeah. But Tamils learning in general, learning. not just Brahmins. Learning for learning's sake, because right. there's a knowledge base. Our right. intellectual. Tamil oh. country is an intellectual part of India, uh, no matter what caste. So this is for learning for learning's sake. So I arrived and then, so I applied to the East-West Center that now that I have finished, since it is a Fulbright program, which can indeed authorize a uh, uh, tour. And there was another person, uh, an Indian man from Bangalore, a uh, very brilliant CA, who was also finished at the same time. We both applied together. What is CA? CA, Chartered Accountant. Oh, okay. And uh, so we went to, and we both got approved. So he made the itinerary. Part of the time, we traveled together. And uh, so by the time uh, my husband had, um, uh, in between, while I was in Hawaii, my husband and I and the students, we were taken to the mainland, near mainland. So we went to Grand Canyon and uh, all the other places. Grand Canyon. Santa Fe. Wait, so I don't understand. You came to America for a trip? For a trip, yes. And uh, that was a short trip to just southwest. Okay. And uh, so we uh, went and and uh, up to San Francisco. Okay. And uh, so we uh, visited the Grand Canyon and then Arizona, the Tombstone, the Western uh, uh, legends, all of that it was very interesting. And from there, and I also went to Hopi in the late in the late nineteen sixties. Right. And and so what was your what was your impression of America at that time? And you're talking about the Southwest and parts of it was still cultural because Southwest of this country it's, is right. a different part of the right. you know it's laid back, uh, it's art, artsy, and the it's a different kind of people. Yeah. And so the population, hospitality, and then I went to Hopi and Navajo um, um, reservations uh, reservations by myself with my husband. We bought some artifacts. I made some friends over there. Then we came uh, in the plane to San Francisco, Los Angeles and San Francisco. It was evening. Uh, the fog was there completely. Uh, the lights were flickering over the bay. And we could see from uh, the plane. My, I told my husband, this is like heaven. I want to stay in this place. I want to come back here to San Francisco. So uh, it was it was the most romantic sight of my entire life was the plane descending into San Francisco airport with a fog horn blasting or bleating, whatever the term is. And uh, we just got down with the flickering lights. It was just magic. It was magic. And uh, 
I just wanted to share, you got a very nice little comment here from Capolo Creations. Uh, your accomplishments and trailblazing is why I'm tuning in. India has a rich history of incredibly strong women. Please don't stop being an example through being a practitioner and not a theorist of the limitless potential women can possess. Oh, that's very kind. Creations. Yeah. very kind. Just wanted to read that to uh, you. So, um, um, uh, so I came to San Francisco and at that point in time, my husband had already gotten an offer in San Francisco and he stayed back. Okay. So I returned to Hawaii. In between, we have seen... Uh, but of course, I think that also what's interesting to sort of note is you were the one that had the so-called golden ticket to come to America. It wasn't daddy. You were the one that came. Ahead. It was your money. Yes. You brought him over. Yes. You were the one. So it was all really your steam, which is something which is quite extraordinary to think about when you think about mid-1960s. Correct. Even but, today, but, yeah. but back it then, is. especially. It is, but there is something else. He was so brilliant, so disciplined, so exceedingly uh, 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 rooted in his work. He was number one in the university in his electrical engineering, a great connoisseur of music. He didn't sing. He used to say he couldn't sing for if his life depended on it. But he was a great, uh, uh, you know, connoisseur of music. So, and uh, one of the nicest, finest, generous, uh, women supporting, just absolutely fantastic person. So I wouldn't say I brought him. He, I know, but it was He would your, have come yeah. by himself. But he uh, he also made it possible for me uh, to by exit on my own. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I would not have listened if he said, don't go. Right. Okay. Now, uh, he stayed back. I came back to Hawaii and finished. And then... Uh, um, came to the mainland, uh, to San Francisco. And so we, you guys chose San Francisco because Daddy got a job there. Uh, no, I chose San Francisco. And then he got guys... down there, and then he uh, he got through his Hawaii Dr. Holmes um, friend, who was the bank president, uh, Hawaiian First National Bank or something president, who's uh, who. So we, they say only in India these uh, things happen. The families connect to people and other people knowing other people. But it happens quite a lot here. Yeah. So, but the only thing is, still it matters on merit. Not just that you can say, my father, uh, you know, Random was a bank. respectable man. Right. Uh, it is, you, have uh, to, you have to be able to yeah, do the he, work. And... So he said, uh, he contacted his brother, who was the head of Bechtel. And uh, Bechtel immediately was so happy to see an electrical engineer coming to work for them. And so he got uh, the job. And when I came, he was still in a hotel room in San Francisco. And so within uh, about a month of a week of my arrival in San Francisco, I thought I would be grabbed for all my brilliance, all my great uh, achievements, uh, dynamism, happiness. And I was a young woman and I was still wearing a sari, wearing flowers. And it was easy transition for me from Hawaii to San Francisco. I still could wear flowers because at that point in time, San Francisco was not concrete jungle or defaced, defamed and uh, filthy place. Uh, it, was, it was a jewel. It was magic. Flowers everywhere. So I could pick Orchards up... Orchards everywhere, right? 
um, yeah, but parts. No like, Transamerica building, no when, downtown. No, orchards. when there was, some things were coming up, but it was no, no Embarcador and so on. Embarcador. Just the bank buildings, Federal Reserve Bank, et cetera. So anyway. But one of the things I want to quickly jump in and say is, so you arrived in San Francisco as a extremely, I'm just saying, extremely accomplished, multiple degrees, right? English literature, business, mathematics, physics, Fulbright scholar. So one thing after another, uh, an, an attractive young person wearing, you know, flowers, uh, knowing something about traditions of all over the world, choosing to wear your own costume, the sari, because you thought it was the most beautiful thing. And later on, we'll talk about your, your collection went on exhibit at the Smithsonian Institution decades later, uh, of, of, along with other fabrics, because, you know, you're a great fabric collector and admirer of beauty across cultures. So you show up and you would think somebody who's ready to take on the world, you land in San Francisco, what happens? There were no women. There were no women that were working. Uh, working, they were, there were women, but they were secretaries. And I want to also cut in here. Meanwhile, back in India, Meanwhile, women back in India, working. 50% of doctors were women. There was a uh, prime minister who had already been a ruthless a prime minister who had been elected that was a woman. Correct. And many, many women, they don't know that. In fact, they meaning Americans don't Americans, know Americans, well, CIA knew that. <laughs> and uh, the um, UN, all of UN, NSF, they had all made study knowing that India will be the spring, source of spring for the next technological wizardry, technological people coming, the source of engineers for the world. They knew that. But This it's not factor something. I knew when I came to Washington, D.C., started to advise National Science Foundation. I was told that. I was shown the reports. So you, so that's very interesting that the CIA had all this intelligence and yet you never hear about India being ahead in anything. But what it, clearly, and I know because you've told me this, that women were working, that in many ways it was regressive. Yeah, You were. came to a place where women were not working. And I'm going to quote you, which you've told me multiple times. I'm sure you'll share it in your own words that you said you came to a society where women were still standing at the front de- uh, front door with a cocktail waiting for the husband. That was a TV home. thing. In TV, you see these women just the opening, the, you know, giving a cocktail. And, you know, just uh, that, that was a TV. But, uh, you know, women were beginning to come out, but they were not easily accepted. So I was disappointed that I, were there. I did not have multiple offers. And even at Berkeley and Stanford, and I was able to co-teach a course uh, at the business school at Berkeley, at uh, the extension. And in San Francisco, I was able to do something for the Stanford Research Institute and so on. But I was walking down uh, financial district, asking for work within my MBA in mathematics and so on. It's a very interesting thing. Uh, I finally met... Um, one of the most interesting thing about my experience here is how much support the Jewish uh, people have given others who have come to this country. It's extraordinary. And uh, so I met Howard Baumgarten, Baumgarten, who was the senior vice president of Arthur D. Little. I um, uh, went to him and I asked him, 
um, I would. I, Were you I, discouraged, by the way? Or oh yes, I just thought you know I wasn't even going to wait for two days, three days, four days because this is extraordinary. I mean, I never had to look for a job. People, the job was there, picked. yeah, for me everywhere. So I asked how Howard Baumgarten. He said, "You know what, Mangalam, your resume." Your resume says all of these things you have done, your accomplishments, your pundit-level credentials in languages which are not your mother tongue, and in English and this and that, and then you have mathematics and physics, and then you have taken banking courses, British and Indian Institute of Bankers, and all and sorts of other things in, in Chaucer and English literature, Chaucer, old English literature, Elizabethan, Elizabethan, and Astron- astronomy. And he said, you, were a you know what? performing artist, a dancer, you, were, had, Correct. You, were, you knew how to use a gun. <laughs> yeah. And he said something. He said, you know, your resume, we are not in a position to be able to judge all this. You know what your resume should be? Your name, address, telephone number. And underneath that, you should say uh, MBA. Forget your English literature masters. It confuses us. MBA in math. That's it. No, no, MBA and then math, take out the physics. Yeah. They would say, what are you doing in physics if you're a mathematician? Okay, then put something about banking certificate. Don't list all of these things, money, currency, this and that, and all of that. And uh, and you worked as a uh, lecturer in English literature uh, in the University of Madras. Take it out. Just say that you were... Uh, you know, uh, first woman officer of uh, the one of the first, the second the State actually, Bank of India, State yeah. Bank of India, which is Imperial Bank of England at that time, and uh, so you, you do that, and that's it. And that was shocking. No dance, and and I said, okay, I just hurt me. But you trusted him to do that. Oh yes, because he also gave me a job. Yeah. He gave me a job as consultant, and you know what was the consulting? This is the most interesting. Arthur uh, Little was hired by University of California, Berkeley. Right, I remember the story. Uh, to, um, uh, there was something called a, a parking lot near Berkeley. And they wanted to build... This is a get, great story, by the way, for the listeners. Go ahead. Uh, the, the parking lot it's was very historical. Be, yes, it is indeed. Talk about Forrest Gump. Here we go. And uh, so the the... A uh, parking lot was going to be dismantled and um, university was going to build, I don't know what they were going to build, another research lab or dorm or something. Immediately, the people objected to it because it was the time of the hippies. The hippies joined in and there was so whole other thing. And I was sent before all the hippies came and so on to make an assessment of that property. What do I know about all of that? Nothing. But then this was a challenge. Okay, I learned. And after all, Arthur Baumgarten was such a nice man. And he had already invited me to his home in Mill Valley. And his wife and he toasted me and showed me off. And so here I was, I could, he would guide me. So I took it. I did the parking lot study. <laughs> and, and I said, it is very acquirable by the university. And this is the money they should pay and all of that, which was all filled in by Baumgarten. That is it. That started the movement in San Francisco against establishment. 
What do you mean? That started what? What was the movement? The movement was all the people were upset. People came so out that, in the streets. Are you saying that basically started the 70s, essentially? That late 60s. Lot. The late 60s, that fight over that parking lot is really kind of what started the whole movement of the, the hippies. Well, and... I, I wouldn't go that far because this country was ready at that time right. with the Vietnam and everything else. And uh, then, uh, and of course, uh, Ravi Shankar had come, Allah Rakha uh, um, uh, had come here, the, the Beatles had gone, Beatles had come. So, you know, there was an international influence of India has come. And uh, so Indian uh, thought and uh, everything had come. And then the hippies were gathering because it was after all San Francisco. Most of them are white uh, men and women, uh, you know, just uh, upset with their parents. It was a rebellion movement, first of all, but then they all landed up in, and then the drugs came. In Haight-Ashbury, yeah. It uh, quickly became... And we were only a mile from Haytash. But I just want to say, but that I just want to get back to that parking lot. That assessment of that parking lot, the objection to it is kind of what kicked off one of the one of the one of the events one of the events against the University of California, uh, and you know, and the real estate. And you were the consultant that was going to figure out. Yeah, I was the take... one. And in <laughs> fact, the next job that Arthur Little. Uh, recommended was that I become the general manager of the Berkeley Co-op, which was the cooperative society where uh, mostly hippie-like people and uh, uh, the others who were socially motivated and were upset with corporate uh, uh, sourcing of food material and so on, were gathering all kinds of food and plenty of all of these grains and everything in bulk food in Berkeley was very big, very successful. And run by hippies, and and uh, with the India being so appreciated at that moment in time, uh, Baumgarten said to me, "You are just perfectly suited." And so when I went to the interview, in fact, the, the general manager, the co-op, oh. a big food co-op, it was like a, you know because they wanted to defeat the corporation, the Formas and McKesson. So you were probably kind of into that. Yeah, and uh, and then they said to me, uh, the the head of it was half hippie, and he told me, you are an oppressed sister. You're not <laughs> going to be anymore that way. And I'm going to really recommend that you become. I was you terrified. Thought you, were, you thought you were an oppressed person? Well, uh, uh, well, oppressed. All the Indians were oppressed. Blacks were oppressed. And America was oppressing the world. The Vietnamese <laughs> were oppressed. So, but in any case... <laughs> I declined that job. Oh, I kind of feel like if you'd taken that job, we might have been like, we might have been like co-founding tech companies because everybody would have come through that co-op in those days. Yes. All of the people that started but I, all of the I, You know, companies. that was not my, why would I come from uh, India to manage a food business here? Because no. that's not what my goal was. My goal was to, uh, to learn about America, technology and so on. So finally, while I wasn't, in such distress, um, it has been about uh, two weeks, three weeks since, and Bank of America and all of those people had uh, been going around and asking, but there were no women. There was one woman uh, who was a professional in Dean Witter, uh, the uh, investment bank. And uh, that was about it. All the others were, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't want to describe it. Maybe there were others that I did not know about, but 
most of the women were not in a professional career. So I was standing with my husband, filling the tax form. I cried. And he asked me, why are you crying? I said, I want to pay taxes. He said, this would be such a, an advertisement for America, uh, American IRS. And he said, oh, you will pay taxes. Don't worry about it. And you've always been that way. You've yeah. always wanted to pay taxes. You've always encouraged us, like even in times when it was would have been easy to do something like go on unemployment, which so many people, you know, have done working at startups because, you know, startup goes under. You've always said, no, you guys should earn your way. So you've been very adamant about those sort of principles. So you wanted to pay taxes. Correct. You Actually, be... after daddy died, I refused to take the pension. I didn't come here. I came here first. Yeah. And But any case, but going back to San Francisco... Uh, so, so you were so you were in the middle. So talk a little bit about the hippies. Like we played a couple of songs. I started with Jimi Hendrix all along the Watchtower, and then I played you like I'm not a Bob Dylan fan, but we played uh, "Blowing in the Wind" because you like Bob Dylan. What was happening at Berkeley in those days? Because you were teaching, I think, at Berkeley. Just Reagan, one course. Yeah, and uh, Reagan. There was all these anti-war protests. There correct. were the hippies, hate Ashbury. Correct. You know, Before you would that, go to grocery stores and they would say, "Don't pay for this, man. You could just yeah. take it." Before that, I was. Uh, I went to um, um, Wells Fargo, where I had not thought of entering because that I just thought they were a stagecoach bank. And uh, because that comes from my having visited the Southwest before coming to San Francisco. Anyway, I entered and uh, I did not go to human resources. I went to directly to someone who's office. Uh, he was a said director. I went right in there. I said, I'm looking for work. And he asked me, uh, he was a naval officer of high rank who had just joined the bank. And he said, have you tried going to the human resources? I said, no. <laughs> and uh, he said, okay, sit down, take a seat. What is it that you can do? God, why, where did you America study? isn't like that anymore? Yeah, I where did you study? if I sat in the lobby of somewhere waiting for a job. Yeah, and where did you, where did you study and all of that? So at the end of which... But we said, can I just say... Wasn't America different culturally then that people were willing, if somebody took the initiative and walked into an office, which was very unusual for women in those days and a young woman, that they would say, oh, that's interesting. Sit down, at least have a conversation with Correct. me. Whereas now I would get arrested yeah. if I walked in somewhere. And he actually was interviewing um, a young man uh, who was a graduate from, not graduate, he had done just a BA degree from San Francisco State. He was there and so on. So he said, let me do this. Why don't I offer both of you research associates? Oh. I said to him, uh, okay. Uh, and I so said, there was somebody else that was looking for a job there too, yeah. you're saying? Yeah, so he you. was outside. He was brought in after I um, uh, you know, broke through the <laughs> gate and went in. He was brought in. He said, I had actually somebody waiting for also a job. Let me bring him in. Alan. And he said, so we both were given the job. And he Except said... you were way overqualified than him. Uh, no, he said, uh, Alan, this is your responsibility. Mangalam will be working with you. I said, that's not acceptable. Who he said just, that? I said, to the, he, you know, he is just a grad, he just had a BA from San Francisco State. <laughs> and I have several <laughs> master's degrees. I have a professional uh, experience. 
with a with a bank, very very formidable bank, Imperial Bank, State Bank of India, which is half Reserve Bank of India. And here I am with all of this, and you are saying that I work. He doesn't have an MBA. And Tishner looked at me and he, he said, "He was the boss. He was the boss. He was from Navy, high-ranking Navy official who was taken taken this job as researcher as a director." He said, "My God, do Indian women talk like that?" I said, "I do." Yeah, I do, and I think Indian women never had to go into a job, and ask for uh, ask for um, money because money was uh, fixed to the job. Yeah, and he said, "So Indian women talk like this." I said, "More likely, Indian women would talk like this than men." If you tell a man in India you don't have a job, he would say, "Oh, I have a wife, I have a child, I have mother and father living with me. I, you know, I have these qualifications and so on." The women would say, "How dare you do that to me?" And you know, Indian women would always be the person who would finally uh, decide. You mean women from in- India? Indian- India, not um, not yes. like me, Indian American or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah so he that. told me, "Is interesting." He said, "Would that be all right with you? Both of you are the same <laughs> level of money." I said, "It wouldn't. It's not about money. It's what? about where you are placing me." You're way too principled. Yeah, and I said, "He should work for me." You I, said that in yeah. front of him. Yeah, he should work for me, and I am not the one to be working for him. 1960s. Wow. And he said, "All right. Uh, okay, this is what we do." You both will be research associates. Neither of you will have to work for each other. <laughs> he is going to be working in marketing research, and you will be in an analytical thing. But listen, but that also just take a step back. Do you know how extraordinary that is at that time? That a man would have been so impressed with you that he would listen to what Correct. you were saying today. If you said that, there would be no chance. They would you say she's he- tough. She doesn't get along with people. She thinks too much of herself. Even if you had that stack of qualifications, you couldn't do that at Harvard. Yeah, you couldn't do that at Harvard. And right. the money is never uh, money is not fixed for the job. It is fixed for gender by gender. So in any case, uh, I uh, I was uh, happy. But then, uh, so here I was at uh, at the same time. University of California asked me because I had sent Dr. Heggy, the dean. Uh, my resume. He said, uh, "Unfortunately, you do not have a PhD in business administration, and I cannot bring bring you in. But I can have you as an instructor. Uh, but for now, let's teach. Let's put you in uh, this. There is a course that women, uh, uh, you know, women managers, uh, how for women to get to be in management cadre." Course coming up, and so and so is going to be teaching a consulting woman, and you are going to be assisting her. And the whole teaching was laughable. Uh, it was to, uh, we went from place to place and various places. The women managers, upcoming people, what is what you should wear, the pear-shaped women, pear-shaped and, women, yeah, and uh, how the women should look. Uh, Those hair. were the management classes at management Berkeley. classes at on Berkeley. for women. Yeah, uh, it was, uh, was sponsored by Berkeley. 19- which, which I, I'm just going to jump in and say because 
to clarify that was quite shocking to you then, uh, which is, I mean, it's shocking to hear this, that a place, you know, which I think is often viewed as not being particularly progressive, India, these would be shocking things to talk about in India, which was actually many, many decades later when I went to go work in India. It was the same situation. I had American friends coming over and talking to me about the way that, oh my God, this woman, you know, top tech CEO in America who was wearing this, got in trouble for wearing this and women should wear whatever they wanted. And the Indian colleagues around the table were all squirming. And I had to explain to her the conversation, what you're talking about doesn't even register for these people because you don't talk about the way that a woman dresses, Uh, period. Yeah, this is this was was, this was the topic. Yeah, this was, uh, you know, the length of the skirt and this and that. And uh, I I had known at that time very distinguished people from uh, um, uh, Berkeley, Lillian Thal. He was the uh, publisher, uh, University of uh, California publisher, extraordinary intellectual, many other people. When I told him and he said, would you be teaching again? I said, no. Yeah. I will not teach. And so in any case, while I was in San Francisco, I was getting involved and the ambassador at that time at San Francisco Consul General later on became the ambassador to, of India uh, to the United States. And uh, Shankar Bajpai got to know of me because there were only two or three Indians. Right. There uh, weren't, in, shockingly, there were no Indians no, in California at that San time. San Francisco. And, uh, and but, also, just really quickly, can you talk about where you lived at that time? It was yes, not on the map. Right? Uh, it was uh, the 48th Avenue, one block to the Pacific Ocean. And, uh, you know, on one side is uh, a couple of miles from there is Golden Gate Bridge and the Sea Rock, Seal Rock. And on the other side is Pacific Ocean. There was only one small craggy street after that, which was just at the edge of Pacific Ocean. And it was at the end of this uh, tram car and the end of the bus. And we used to take it. And believe it or not, we had a neighbor and our neighbor's name was Mr. Jones. So we had Mr. Jones as a neighbor and a working class neighborhood. And, you know, very modest house uh, of uh, upstairs, downstairs. So we were uh, there. In any case, uh, the ambassador uh, but heard was about... On, but the thing that I wanted you to say was that it was, on, it was not on the maps because anywhere on the map it said where the house was, it said uninhabitable due to dense fog. Yes, 48th yeah. and 48th so Avenue. it wasn't an so. inhabitable area that you had got the house. Right. Yeah. right. And, uh, you know, it's, just, it's interesting. And uh, the, uh, the consul general, Shankar Bajpai, brought me in. So I got uh, started to get involved with the Diyang Museum, uh, Diyang Museum. And we were doing a lot of work on India with his wife on uh, uh, Indian costumes. I had already had a huge costume collection and it was going in costume and so on. Then Diane Feinstein at that time was, I think she was the mayor of San Francisco, the 25th anniversary of the United Nations uh, was being celebrated because San Francisco was the place where the UN charter was uh, brought about, the UN was brought about. So they were celebrating it. 
and Diane Feinstein asked me to become the caucus chair of Asia. So I had a, a very good pivotal role there in that. While you were working at Arthur D. Little and Wells No, Fargo. while I was working uh, with um, Wells Fargo. Okay. And uh, then at the same time, I was uh, looking at, uh, uh, I, I was going to Stanford quite a bit. I was going to Berkeley. And somehow I wanted to do something other than just being a banker. Yeah. And, uh, but teach. I was able to, uh, Wells Fargo sent me for training at IBM. I was the first person to be trained on IBM 360, oh. which was this huge machine sitting in a whole huge room uh, far away from the computer of today, which you can carry in your purse pocket yeah. or in your you know, pocket. Yeah. And so this was uh, really a different time. What year, in what year? This was like 1968. Still 68, 69. 68, 69. And then I just want to quickly also ask about the unrest, the cultural movements, uh, you know, Berkeley, the hippies, the people in hate Ashbury, and also what happened to them? Because I think that's very interesting. Yeah. And I think it's the story of America that people can go and have these really kind of um, crazy lives that look like that they are on a roller coaster ride going down fast. Yeah. But they come out on the other side and become Ben and Jerry's. Uh, but not only that, they, but they become... How is that uh, possible? That's America. Yeah, New York Stock Exchange brokers, but yeah. uh, like the Hayden and so on. But in any case, at that time, uh, the, the hippies were beginning to arrive and there was a whole lot of things and drug scene and so on. I came to know some of them. I had good friends there yeah. that would introduce me to various people. And I also met Angela Davis there. And I was in uh, Berkeley streets quite Angela often. Angela Davis, the African-American black activist, black yeah, power. Correct. And yeah. uh, many others with her. Yeah. And then I uh, would stand in uh, Berkeley on Shattuck Avenue and see the tanks move. It was like a second world war. I mean, uh, world were the war scene. there? Uh, Reagan brought it. Reagan would never enter the Berkeley campus because he'd be Reagan was down. the governor of governor. California, California at that California. time. Intensely disliked, I think, by the people. Right? Well, they thought that he was the reason everything was wrong, and so meaning the war and everything. yeah, everything was wrong about. And the, so he would not set foot in Berkeley. Berkeley, campus. okay. And so it is usually the chancellor's meeting would happen in any every other campus, but not in Berkeley. And so say say the gate at that time when I used to teach, there were hippies were my students. I did teach another course uh, in in the uh, in the campus. And I would arrive there uh, dressed in huge uh, American Indian costume and beads and everything else. And put you on. like all of that Yeah, I always like uh, tribal wear. Tribal wear. And my own and Indian wear. tribal wear with a big bindi and lots of flowers and so on. And there were they about, thought you were one of them. Uh, yeah, 12 students. But you kind of were. Nine students were hippies and there were uh, so many dogs. And as most Indians are, I was afraid of dogs. They would bring their dogs uh, to class. Inside the class. So, but then they were good to me, so I could request them without getting them uh, to start another revolution. So I would say, is it all right if you could bring only one dog and leave the rest outside? They said, no problem, man. <laughs> and so they would do that. And I'd go to the Seder Gate and sitting there with some people, most of them naked under the Seder Gate, fountain with color water, putting on themselves... When, my, when I took my mother, who had come to stay with me because I was pregnant, to uh, aid in the pregnancy, 
and uh, and uh, you know to i was pregnant with this woman who's now uh, uh, interviewing me sorry you and so uh, there uh, i was uh, you know uh, my mother and she said this is a university i said yes she was shocked she was totally shocked and then anyway we extricated her from there <laughs> and my husband at that time was coming to the university of california from Bechtel, trying to uh, start a uh, help uh, University of California design a nuclear engineering program, master's program. And here he would come, the only people who were properly dressed who came to the university campus were the Asians, Chinese, Japanese, and Indians. They were always dressed properly. And so he uh, would come. Uh, dressed in suit because he was coming from downtown San Francisco from also, a corporate he was office. A square. And he would come to say the gate. I would be sitting there. He would say, hi, could we have lunch? I said, who are you? Don't talk to me. Because my <laughs> own reputation yeah. was at stake. And I said, you were talking to the man. It was this man with a suit. And I said, why are you talking to me? <laughs> he, he then, Who are you? I'm not going to have lunch with anybody in a suit like this. And then so basically, when you were sitting with your hippie friends, you pretended not to know your husband yes. because he was conservative well, okay. or looked conservative. Yeah. Well, you know, that was also just fun. But in any uh, case, but, and you know, I want to just one thing before we get further. One of the things that we actually kind of skipped over, which we didn't talk about, which I thought was very important, was when you took your Fulbright scholarship. That was before, right? When you went all around. I, I want to make a comment on that. Yeah. It was not a Fulbright scholarship. It was a Fulbright. It was a scholarship under the Fulbright program. Okay. Fulbright but, had many. One was a scholarship. Yeah. Where they bring, uh, take Americans to overseas, overseas people to here, with a very I, specific subject uh, focus. The Fulbright program had other things, which was one of the most important things was the East-West Center. Yeah. Which is today still Hawaii, exists in Hawaii. In Hawaii, in University but, of Hawaii. But I want the point I want one thing that I think we kind of skipped over is the trip that you took all around America, what you found. You'd also told that funny story about the Australian hitchhiker. The fact that when you went with your colleague, there was it was still a time when there were black fountains and white fountains and you know, they would separate yes. people based on skin yes. color plus is, Martin Luther King. So I just wanna I sorry, I'm yes. going back a little bit. Right. Let's talk about it, the year. It is before San Francisco. Just my, quickly can we well, revisit that yes. the year? I took uh what year? myself sixty sixty eight. Okay. Sixty eight, sixty seven sixty sixty seven the end, sixty eight beginning. I uh, took a bus along with my friend the chartered accountant from India, Prasad, uh, La Jolla, California. You went all around the country as a this part of this Fulbright and, program. You know, many Americans said, you are married and you're traveling with this man? I said, yes. So Americans were shocked that you were married and traveling with a man that you weren't married to Correct. on a bus. Okay. Yeah, young man. Yeah. And so we were uh, in uh, La Jolla, California. And just to back up them a little bit, this this program was sending you around America as a cultural exchange. Uh, I, as a, as an, like an ambassador. And it became, now it was conveyed to the State Department. So it was not just the East West Center. State Department was organizing it. Okay. So I uh, went to from La Jolla, California, all the way along the Rio Grande I was going. 
the buses were small and it was people by people who were really like western movies they looked like people from western movies they brought their chickens they brought their little goats and so on and they all stared at me they were wearing that so we went through el paso and so on and so forth finally arrived in new orleans all the way across and in el paso what was interesting was when uh, we arrived and there was a hotel room booked for prasad in the hotel room for me we arrived he was not allowed inside and then i uh, had to tell them he's my brother but Why? you look different and uh, they said because he was dark so they basically thought you were quote unquote white and he was dark so they wanted yeah they, they thought, thought that i was caucasian and he was uh, you so know so this was at the color. time of segregation at the, at the time yeah. yeah and so on but this did not happen afterwards anywhere only there where in, was this in el paso Louisiana, in el paso in texas and and so on and so that's quite shocking for you yeah, to it because was, it was for uh, Indians. it yeah. was also very troubling and uh, so then i went to uh, new orleans but why did you think about that at that time because you, uh, you had know, not experienced no, this in no i India. wasn't I, you know i wasn't ready to make a judgment at that time but then i came to new orleans uh, we were traveling in a in a boat mark twain and uh, so uh, looking at new orleans and the scene and the music and everything else and there were two women and who were looking at me because i was still dressed uh in hawaiian outfit uh with the lace on me because i was coming from hawaii and my hair was open lace like a lace Lay. like a flower flowers yeah. and so on so these women were looking at me they were sisters uh one was in new, living in new orleans the other one is from midwest they were sisters and slowly they picked up courage and moved toward me and they asked me are you flower girl flower girl flower child <laughs> because san francisco before the hippie movement there were flower children so they had never had seen flower children into hippies. hippies yeah so i just didn't want to disappoint them i said how did you know and they said oh you look like one you are wearing flowers and then we got so and then i got introduced to the culture of the south in this country the hospitality they invited me to their home that evening for dinner yeah so we went to their home for dinner and uh, but what i just want to say really quickly what i think is interesting is that for them the whole here you're talking about another region of the united states that was looking at what was happening in the late 60s and early 70s in california as a different country flower children hippies right it it seemed yes. very foreign to them yes. and uh, you know and and there was already indian music blasting everywhere ravi shankar and beatles and you know that that was different california was so uh we so went, went to their home we went to their homes and then from there we went to nashville oh and uh, and then uh, elvis presley this and that and the other and and then knoxville and then the mountains uh, the smoky mountains and all all over uh, the us and that's where then, dolly parton's from i'm just yeah. giving a plug to my dolly parton show if you yeah. haven't listened to it you should and so i went to um, most of the other places and uh, then i arrived in um um uh what is it uh where did i go next uh new york city oh i had asked that uh, the state department 
in every place, as soon as I arrived there, there would be a woman, usually a wealthy woman, because of the Republican administration. Who this, was the President Nixon? Uh, no, still, um, I think, I don't know who, I don't know. But it remember. was a Republican administration. Okay. Uh, Republican. So uh, there would be an re- important Republican senator's wife or um, head of a Republican party, a woman would be waiting for me. Like only most Americans would do, before I arrived, they would have done their homework. They would have their resume, my resume. They knew I was from South India. I was a Brahmin. They had more to do with my being a Brahmin than myself. They would say, you're a Tamil Brahmin. You're, you know, you study mathematics. You are very clever, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And then they would uh, go ahead and uh, read my own resume to me. And then afterwards, they'll say, this is an itinerary. Then they would take me from uh, all the way and, and tell me about the city, the history, and then take me to the city hall. I'll receive a key or something from the mayor, and then we'll go from pillar to post. And then in the evening, they'll usually take me to a suburban home, and they'll say, we'll show you how Americans live. And they did not know I had lived here already for a year and a year and a half. So uh, we'll go there. But you didn't want to destroy their fantasy. Um, they were showing you America for the first time. <laughs> oh, well, correct. And, uh, you so you're know, being the, polite. Uh, the, I was, I would uh, say, oh, okay. And this also happened in San Francisco. Before I went to Hawaii, uh, La Jolla, we went to San Francisco. So this happened, you had this, essentially this templated welcoming committee in every city yeah, that every you were going city. to. Every city. And so the sequence of events is a woman meets you, basically reads you your resume very politely. Yeah, 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 exactly. Very, very, very important woman in, in the Carter of women there, and very influential women, rich women. And so they would take me there. So since I had asked them, they asked me, do you have any preference? I said, I would like to meet industrialists in the Midwest. I want to meet uh, innovation places like in the Midwest. And I want to uh, see uh, the New York, uh, the, uh, the cultural scene, uh, the Met and all of that, and also uh, uh, what did I say, the um, newspaper people. I said I would like to meet Eric Severide, the CBS newsman who we admired greatly because of his measured uh, commentary, which seemed like middle of the road, which was very, uh, very appropriate, very good, very proper. So there I was, uh, you know, so I went to the CBS studio. There I was. Uh, um, uh, received by Eric Severide. Almost the very first thing he told me was, first he appreciated the sari. He said, what a beautiful attire. And then he asked me um, how long I've been in the U.S. And then he said, I will tell you, I went to India. I was so humiliated and humbled in India uh, and Calcutta, the poverty, uh, the dead people on the road, the pestilence, and he immediately muted me, disarmed me. I was very, very, very upset. Then I just controlled Why? myself. Because he brought up poverty. The first thing he said to you was about poverty. The, that I mean, India is a huge country of wealth and poverty. So basically, then culture what and deprivation. Just so I can paraphrase, what you're experiencing then is somebody that is. Um, essentially one of the foremost journalists in the United States, an elite group of court war correspondents that 
I think was hired at CBS by Edward Murrow and stuff, but uh, basically is saying to you something that is uh, basically, quite, you know, somewhat ignorant, uh, you yeah. know, about uh, what correct. he understands about India, which is... Correct. Not understanding uh, the country, the culture of opulence, which was continuously robbed for 2,000 years. So I, in any case, uh, then I went to various places. Then the next step was... Um, uh, from there, we went to Washington, D.C., met with the various people in Washington, D.C., went to the FBI building, went to the U.S. Senate and uh, the Congress and met with uh, many people. And much later, I also met with Walter Cronkite, which I appreciated so much. The amount of respect he showed me. And I was having lunch with uh, Senator Aberask and uh, Walter Cronkite asked me who would this uh, person would be and so on. So uh, then I came Washington D.C. Martin Luther King had just been assassinated. What year? So this was nineteen sixty-seven, I think. You have to find. I don't ask me about the years now. Okay. And uh, so uh, the um, uh, D.C. was burning. Uh, there was violence. And the, there was a lot of fire. A lot of upset. A lot of things going on. And the plane. So, so just. You had arrived in D.C. Uh, on the bus? Yeah, well, uh, flight. You, so you guys took flights and buses? Yes. Okay. And we, I have, we have been to a few places in Washington, D.C. We finished some of the things. And then uh, here, uh, uh, the Martin Luther King's assassination news came and the city was burning. And what was your impression of King, of Martin Luther King? I will come to that later. Just that this one is... Um, uh, we, I had already known who he was and by his work and uh, his uh, visit to India, uh, his visit with Mahatma Gandhi and then Aurobindo Ashram uh, in Pondicherry. And, which uh, influenced quite which, a bit. Uh, which actually influenced the nonviolent movement that he started, which really won some civil rights in this country. And, uh, you know, he so all of that. So it was it was it hit close to home. Uh, for many Indians and in India too. So he, um, um, then the fl- the flight took off uh, very reluctantly because the downtown, downtown was burning. As you know, the Washington National Airport is just at the edge of downtown. And uh, once it started burning, it was already, the flight was already in progress, though they were going to uh, go Abort. to Baltimore. Baltimore was burning. They couldn't land. From Baltimore, they diverted the plane to Detroit. Detroit was burning. They could not land the plane so in Detroit. So burning meaning people were setting the cities on fire in mourning yeah, they and were, protest. Correct, and the protest yeah. and so on. Then it was sent back to Buffalo. Buffalo was burning. And then the same plane was sent back to Detroit was landed in the tarmac. We were in the tarmac all night. And it was very, very sad, sad, sad time. Then finally, when the law took hold of the situation, things calmed down a bit. We arrived in Chicago and uh, saw everything you need to see, the Great Lakes and uh, all the other things about Chicago, the Mercantile Exchange. Uh, you know, etc. And uh, then 
you know, to the Northwest and so on, came back to Shiva, Chicago, and, uh, you know, to, uh, from Chicago uh, to Boston. In Boston, when we arrived, by the time uh, Prasad, uh, my companion for the travel, uh, had branched off. He had his own interests somewhere. And uh, he was mostly in the Midwest around Chicago and Rochester and so on, uh, investigating his profession. Do you know what happened to him? Uh, I, uh, I do not know much, but I know that he had followed me and somebody much later was telling me all about how much he has admired, how much he has talked about me and so on. But in any case, uh, so he, he, um, uh, he went back to Bangalore. He was in Bangalore. And uh, he probably is still alive. And I um, arrived in Boston. The same person, another person came, uh, a, a Republican woman, very rich, very uh, important, influential. Uh, she did the same thing. My read, read my resume to me and then took me around from place to place uh, to the city on the hill and where the, this cradle of civilization, blah, 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 and took me to various places. And by the time I was tired of going to places, and this is 200 years old, this is 300 years old, he sat so here. So it was the same story at every... Every place, it was the same story. You would be met and by I, a woman. Yeah, yeah, I have already told you. And then take, um, uh, you know, take me to various uh, places. And oh, then the you. suburban uh, place for a dinner and so on. Then they would take you, but one, you're missing one thing. That's what I was trying to get at. You, they would take you to a suburban home where it was, you had mentioned to me many, many times, it was the same thing templatized. It was a family of four because these families were chosen because they represented what they wanted you to see of America. White uh, America. Yeah, uh, white America, but a, a family of four. Uh, with a father, a mother, you know, and the daughter would go out on a date and the guy would come to the front door and yes. ask, you know, is Susie home? And the father would invite him in and sit. No, that him. was in San Francisco. Oh, I see. Uh, I thought that was in every house. That uh, no, no. To. Here, every place they would uh, give us, send us, and then they really did not know. They just felt poor little person from poor India. So they would tell me about America and how they eat and salad and etc. And then they would tell me about apple pie. We usually in America have apple pie as our dessert and, and so on. I didn't want to disappoint them. And I was also told in my orientation many, many couple of years ago at Hawaii that American women, unlike French women, would like to share their recipe, but you have to ask for it. Oh. And so every place I went, I'd say, oh, this is so good. Oh, this is apple pie. May I have the recipe, please? And then they would give me the recipe. So I was so tired of going, especially Boston tired me because the woman took me to all the old places in Beacon Hill and told me about all the chairs, old chairs, 200 years, 50 years old and this and that. And then at one point she told me, you come from an old country, you must have very old things. I said, yes, we keep them because we can't throw them out because we will have to buy new ones. And so... <laughs> She said, oh, that makes sense. And so anyway, I um, finally, I just said, enough is enough. I uh, told her, uh, that was very nice. Can you drop me back at the hotel? From the hotel was just opposite to Commons. 
so very tired i just took my little bag and came to the common sat on a bench and uh, not realizing there was already somebody uh, sleeping on that bench oh uh, and it was late in the evening and so i didn't see someone was sleeping so the woman got up and said oh i'm sorry i'm sorry i said oh you're australian she said oh you could tell my um, about my, my accent i said yes and she she said you know i travel uh, all uh, night by bus uh, so that i can see i have a 99 ticket to see all of america from australia and so i get very tired so i sleep on this bench uh, and then i'll uh, bus i'll take a greyhound bus and then move around and so on i told her oh i feel so sorry don't you worry i am going to many other places you can travel <laughs> with me to rhode island new york washington i was going back and i will have places everywhere and that evening i went to the thing and i called the state department i said you can cancel everything just keep my uh, uh, reservations hotel reservation uh, because i've seen enough now so i would like to see mingle with the people that please them i want to see real americans i want to see talk to agriculturalists just ordinary people just walk around the streets and get the spirit of america and they said oh that's an excellent idea uh, so they said you don't have to tell anybody i think i have done any much uh, of everything so i know how to do it and so i had a, i had money they had given me a stipend so i said i have enough money to walk on my own but just i want my residence uh, in all these hotels so every night this australian woman would show up i would give her a bed there in the hotel oh and uh, so but four or five places and then finally i arrived and joined uh, in san francisco that was the san francisco uh, tour of the united states so do you know who do you know this woman anymore who she was her name no. or anything no i, I knew at that time we exchanged some uh, thing and then no after that no no but so basically you met somebody on a park bench and got rid of your plane ticket traded in for two bus tickets or whatever or hotel room so you guys kept meeting all over the country so you could share your hotel room yeah i i had uh, flights everywhere so my she, so my she, flights and uh, um, hotels were there so you coordinated with her so she could end up staying yeah she knew my resume she if could you stay in your room and you, then you then you would go out and see the city yourself at wherever you guys were together yeah and... i just went around and the, you know just uh, you know new york uh, one of the interesting thing was i was in 42nd street i went to a bar and i said uh, what do you like in this glass of milk everybody looked at me <laughs> do you remember what bar i don't know in 42nd street she said, they said there were some people just going around the uh, Uh, thing and taking off their clothes and so on and i said What they told mean? me you are you want milk people were taking off their clothes you know there were some um, dancers and other people and oh it was a strip bar uh, oh. yeah some uh, something was going on <laughs> uh, and they said you want milk you know lady where you are i said yeah and they said you know what i can do better than that i'll give you a cup of black coffee how about that we always have coffee here for the drunks i said but that will be fine so that was in one of the things you about you never told me that story yeah so um uh, then i arrived in san francisco so back in san francisco 
and uh, then of course i was working and then i got pregnant and then my visa ended and my wells fargo job ended because of the visa uh, the us immigration said uh, she cannot work so i said okay and uh, daddy did not have his immigration card he has just had a working visa so and and on a fulbright when you come any of the fulbright programs you have to go back to your place yeah so it was very difficult to continue and uh, so um i started doing some consulting work uh with the stanford research and uh, some other places and so on and then uh, um, my mother came uh to help with the pregnancy and then at uh, the uh, matter of 8 months uh, i told him christmas was coming and i told uh, daddy that before we leave from here sooner or later i knew that i would have to go to, go back to india uh, because my visa was not right and so i said i think if they deny my visa i'll be glad to get back home and so let's go to um uh Salt Lake City I want to listen to the Mormon Tabernacle choir. He didn't know what I was talking about and but he was usually a very accommodating uh, kind of husband. He said fine we'll go. And so we started uh, going. Uh, you were eight I 8 months in my belly. Uh was party there? No, she wasn't there in the car. So we started moving toward um Patty's my grandmother. Yes. I um, um near Winnemucca uh there was very heavy snow in a San Francisco car in a San Francisco attire uh with slippers and daddy was wearing summer shoes and uh, no winter clothing and here we were with some sweaters and some blankets inside a car dodge dodge caravan car and um, uh we were going into um, uh, as a vinimuka it was dusk and there was about 4 feet 5 feet of snow on the ground the car got stuck there was nothing anywhere as far as the eye could see there was nothing at one point daddy was saying he was worried that i i would either abort or i would uh, we would be uh, destroyed there and at a very great distance we saw a flickering light he said oh there must be some settlement there but it would be at least a mile and a half into the snow fields so slowly we walked he was almost carrying me we arrived uh and uh, this was an indian settlement and uh, just single uh, uh resident and there was a on the porch there was, so was an a, old woman so it was an indian reservation it was not a reservation it was by itself oh an indian uh, uh house and uh, the woman was sitting there and uh, she saw and she called her two boys big boys uh, her sons they came assisted us inside and she warmed my hands warmed my belly and then she said 
she said. And at the outside, there was a tree on which a carcass was hanging. Uh, their hunt, you know, that's how people preserved meat in those days. Mm-hmm. And she said, I can give you some meat soup. I said, no, no meat and so on. Then they gave me some black horn uh, something. And uh, did you the, know what Indians, what type of Indians? No, they were? no, no, no. And then they said, before it is too late, we don't have any heat here. You won't be comfortable here. You may even have a child here. So it is better for you to somehow go away from here. There's a motel in uh, Vinimoka, And from there, you can make your way into Salt Lake City. So she, uh, the, the boys came uh, with us slowly, took us in their uh, uh, snowmobile to uh, the Didn't car. Didn't she make a prediction? She said, this girl that is inside your belly will be like a mountain lion. She has withstood this uh, winter. She has come here and she has taken her our black horn soup. And don't worry about her. You're going to be all right. <laughs> so we went anyway. And uh, the boys accompanied us unto the motel, which was about three or four miles from there, over the snow. And we went into um, open the, the motel. It was Christmas Eve. The place was decorated. The nearby villages people had gathered there for Christmas Eve celebration. When uh, people knew that there was new people coming, I was in a sari. And uh, so with the flowers in my hair, uh, the, the hotel uh, owner and his wife came in and she asked me, where are you people from? You are aliens? I said, uh, aliens? Why? Because you were wearing a sari? Well, they thought that we were from flying saucer somewhere. And we were not human beings. But anyway, we were, uh, and I said, no, no, we are from San Francisco. So we uh, uh, went inside and uh, they gave us a room and they introduced us to everybody. They said, this room is free for you people. Because they, you looked so different. To them. Yeah, we, we were different. And we, uh, had a, we had a very good Christmas Eve dinner and cake and everything else. And the next morning we started out and the snow had ended. We went to Salt Lake City. We were sitting in the square. I did not know you cannot go into the temple, Mormon temple. But we listened to the music from outside. So that was the story of going into the Mormon tabernacle. What did you think of the Native Americans that you met along the way? Did you think anything of of them? I mean, they were... I was very surprised at the uh, at the deprivation yeah. in both Hopi and Navajo places, and uh, there were people who were making art very artful. And you know, one of the big thing, big uh, thing that we got from there is a turquoise uh, pendant, and so it was on. a bolero tie, right? Yeah. It was like a tie, and mm-hmm. so it just. Uh, we had uh, so many different things we bought from there. And what we found them to be was they could have robbed us. Yeah, They were very honorable, very hospitable. They gave us food. Uh, they didn't ask too many questions. They didn't know who we were. All that they know were we were tourists. And different. And different. And uh, the same Hopi, thing. Hopi Indians. The same thing. 
and then they told me about their dance hopi navajo and uh, you know all of those and some of them talked to us the children came to see they sang and danced and so on and so but you know much later i went to other indian places that was a very different story so that is my san francisco saga interesting so what so you you stayed so you lived through all of that you know we talked a little bit about what was interesting i have often asked you what were the hippies like and you said oh they actually were quite dirty and didn't uh, really smell very good but i think it's a very interesting observation that here was this chaotic time the sexual revolution woodstock all of the music you know the women's liberation movement the rise of sort of the you know black uh black you know uh, civil rights and all that stuff and it was a time where people just looked crazy you think about charles manson all of these people at that time and yet all of those people went on to start companies like the great technology companies and businesses what is it about america i mean anywhere else they would be left devastated if it was in europe and the kids were like that they probably would not have been that able is, to recover that is why this country is the place of second chances third chances fourth chances no, what is it that they turn around you know this is a question uh this is a question uh that um uh, andrew huxley the grandson of aldous huxley asked me i was his host when i was working with mrs gandhi advising her i was his host in bombay where i had uh, uh, lunch with uh, aldous huxley he was also at that time andrew huxley was the president of royal society uh, of uh, england I was visiting india i was hosting him along with dr siddiqui and uh, he at the tata institute of fundamental research he once he knew i my base was really america i was i had come to india to help with the project and was advising mrs gandhi he told he asked me mrs renivasan i have a question for you about america here it is highly chaotic high school people go from pillar to post they don't seem to focus on uh, uh, education or uh you know propriety discipline nothing and there's some music some uh, uh socialization uh protest this and that and uh, undergraduate school is pretty much the continuation of uh high school people are finding each other people are uh, questioning everybody arguing and this and that then he asked me what happens in graduate school right what happens uh well you know they are arguing they have no respect for education no respect for teachers uh least of all for their parents what what do you make how do you explain this i told him precisely because of all of these background that gives them the kind of energy the ability to question their ability to integrate inter interrogate Uh, no matter who the person is who is giving them selling them a theory or a product and they would say what is it i have had students uh, you know in uh, the university of hawaii asking the teacher teacher which fool will say this yeah this is a graduate student asking them. 
but that's so different from like the Indian system that yeah, I mean, it's so, so different both, from the world. But they're both successful. But the Americans seem to be more successful than anybody. Well, Americans are more innovative, more this thing, more and it's dynamic. not held against them. It doesn't go in your resume. It doesn't go in your people. Don't discourage them or give them bad recommendation. From uh, asking in questions in India, and if you had done something bad in one classroom, were not respectful. You. It is in the union record. Rest of the years that you are so people don't forget. Here, it's uh, it's very different. I told Andrew Huxley, it's precisely that. That is what Monet, who got the Nobel Prize in the United States at Caltech, why a Frenchman, he was asked, "How come you didn't get it in France and you got it here?" He said, "The spirit of inquiry. No matter who is telling you something, yeah. uh, the ability to question." and argue and not worry about respect and protocol and this and that and the other and to stand by what you said disprove the other man but whatever circumstances ready to give up your job but it's still just very strange that people can right size after it looks like they've capsized completely well um, some do not everybody has required because has you know there are people who committed suicide committed murders and you know uh, 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 the ability to uh, to the the mental illness uh, all of them started in the 60s because at that point it was a moot point for america at that point the tinkering americans of home uh, in the constitutional convention uh somebody was making a statement in philadelphia that our american technology will always work our people who are so dexterous and so dutiful and if technology makes a mistake the same technology they will find to correct it and so on that changed that kind of innovation that came in the midwest whether it was automobile motor cars or the steel uh items or for that matter uh the uh, the airplane uh all of these innovations or even cutting the hudson canal all the way so that you can bring open new york the port to all the midwest products all the way all of these things come from the fact of the dexterous duty bound dutiful uh families sticking together supporting each other all changed in the 60s and that is uh, that is then another era of drugs uh, you know free wielding sex free wielding things lack of respect for institutions so if you have good institutions you will produce good people now that order had been reversed so many things uh, change uh, but you know and you're saying this, it was really the 60s when this Start. No, there was one part of it, but the fact is, in like on India, America is big. There is a constant inflow of immigrants. Today, the most successful immigrants, the most productive immigrants, the immigrants who are topping the list of nearly everything, yeah. are Indian immigrants. Yeah, and the reason that and is so. And they come from a completely different. And we need to be clear: the Indians that are. running companies today are from india they're not indian americans like me they are not second generation they're not second generation they are first generation no. with indian education they have done something more here they may know the system they have done 
uh, further research. They have done further uh, business uh, school. They have learned something in this country, something so valuable. And the ability to um, uh, be away from father, mother, and all the people for whom you carry so much burden that you have to ask your further father and mother and grandparents if you're taking a job 100 miles from your city. Somebody could say, like daddy's father told him, uh, oh, you know, Neveli, they are starting a new coal plant. Why don't you work there in Neveli, lignite plant? Why do you have to go to Bhopal? Thousand miles. And uh, so uh, these are the influences of uh, uh, preventing people from taking the action on their own stopped when you came here. Nobody to consult. So you did what you thought were the best. But all of that is, this is the reason why America cannot be easily defeated because the flow of immigration. And uh, it was not the complaint culture. It was not the culture that is denigrating each other. But behind that, we all know uh, the extraordinary cruelty brought on to the black people and uh, the extraordinary deprivation of black Americans in this country, Native Americans and Latin Americans who pick our food and make it cheap. And all of these things are, have happened and are happening right now, side by side by side. But now they have a voice. They have the ability and people have realized that the world is not just going to be looking at it. They will actively participate. Everyone has realized that. So. Like India, this civilization also will survive mm -hmm. so long as there are new, new blood is infused, new uh, people uh, is coming. Like uh, the Tamil poet Bharati says, Shakti will reside in an energetic body, energetic mind. As long as you renew her, you renew the temple in which she is residing, whether it is a stone temple, whether it's your heart, your mind, your brain, your body, she will not flee. She will reside. And that is the thing about renewal, whether you can renew this country, whether you can bring uh, all your old uh, things back. So uh, maybe stop now. I'm getting tired. Oh, yeah, of course. Sure. Sorry. So I just, uh, so I thought I'll just, I want to end it on one thing. We've been going almost two hours. And so we really covered kind of 60s and 70s, your experience. And, you know, if you're interested later, we can, re you know, maybe cover 80s, 90s or talk about other things. But I did want to just circle back with one thing, maybe to end this. Um, and um, what it really is, is, you know, you were there when the seeds of sort of the tech revolution were planted, right? Yeah. Whether it was the apples and, you know, I know that my uncle, uh, Sangra Mama, used to work for a different tech company every month or something because they would open and close very much like startups, except, except they weren't startups. So what were the seeds that were planted then? And what was it unique that created? And of course, we know that Silicon Valley is a dream of the Department of Defense and is really funded by federally funded innovation. Um, but yeah, yeah. but the large can you talk and, a little bit about that, and then we, we'll sort of wrap yeah. it up. The large and broad support 
it is not like everybody was on their own. One thing we forget is the government was actively involved. Yeah. The large and broad support of DARPA and all of that to the various tech, uh, this thing. And also the American innovativeness, American ingenuity, and not accepting uh, defeat and getting up and going in a different direction. Failure is not uh, embarrassing here. No, failure but is not But you do have to succeed eventually. Yeah. You can't be, no one, like I always say in my industry, I always say, yeah, but, you know, fail, and we talk about how great failure is, but the people that are talking about how great failure is are Michael Jordan and Steve Jobs. It's not somebody that is a loser today well, that people are going to admire. That's right. Them, so. They are not covering the poor people. They are covering right. the rich people who are poor. Right. And right. they will show their house I where they came from. Yeah, yeah. But so when you came, when we came, the Silicon Valley was not there. Right. And uh, between San Francisco and uh, San Jose, uh, there was uh, only orchards. Santa, Santa Clara was an orchard. All of them were orchard. In between, there were a few mission temple along the, uh, uh, what is this? Um, uh, El Camino Real. There was a, there was San Mateo and uh, then Palo Alto and uh, then uh, Santa Clara was just an orchard and uh, San Jose. These are mission towns. They were mission towns because once it was peopled by uh, the Hispanics. So you had like San Rafael on the other side and San Leandro and all the Golden Gate uh, side. You know, you have all of these, the mission. There was nothing there. Yeah. Uh, between San Francisco and San Jose, except for Stanford. Yeah. And the reason that Silicon Valley, uh, when I was talking, uh, you know, so as you know, some years ago, I was invited uh, to be the chief guest of honor at uh, uh, Youth's Music for Youth. And I was the chief guest, and they asked me, what was it like when you lived there? And I told them, the entire place where you are all people and living and uh, thriving was nothing but orchards. If you left San Francisco on 101, you were just going straight to San Jose because Palo Alto is laid back. Yeah. Unless you are going on El Camino Rio. And then to San Francisco or to Los Angeles, mission towns, one after the other, Santa Barbara, San Diego. These are all mission towns. One belonged to the Hispanics. So you had nothing there. But uh, the interesting thing that people and uh, the uh, uh, the growth and the innovation was Stanford and Berkeley. And once you come out of there and the land is available for the taking and asking and paying something and the weather is good and there were a constant supply of uh, students coming out of major universities, all the University of California systems, where they went there for nothing in those days. And uh, they are equivalent and sometimes even better than the Ivy Leagues of the East. They did not expect you to have a pedigree uh, to come here or children of princelings or children of dictators. Merit-based. Yeah, merit-based. Uh, the children of dictators from all over the world and, uh, you know, generalismos and so on. And what you have here, bureaucrats and so on, in California, people came to study. Uh, they are lower middle, lower middle class people who came to study from all over the world, the Chinese, Japanese, Indians, Hispanics, everybody else. And uh, so you had constant amount of them, not only UC Berkeley, 
but San Diego, Santa Barbara, all of these various universities of California, and then uh, Davis, the Agriculture University. So you had constant supply. So where would you put your tech company? Yeah. Boston was not then a place. Here yeah. they just were, you know, advisory giving advice Boston to people. New York, even all of the new centers that have come up, it was all Silicon no. Valley. So it was... no, it's all about for peddling for political power, money power, and bank power, but. You know, the history of California is separate uh, from and very different from here. And so that's what has happened. So you had a lot of manpower and uh, land was cheap at that time, was available. All that you had to do is to close one orchard, pay some money to people, they left and so on. Water resources, great water resources then. There was no drought. We never had a drought when we were there. Neither, no fire. In all the four or five years I was there, I never saw one fire. And, uh, and the powerhouse, technological powerhouse of Berkeley. This is unparalleled. Yeah. So uh, that's okay. So that's very, very interesting. It sound, you actually sound exactly unsurprisingly like Craig Barrett, the former CEO, which you're my old boss, chairman of Intel. We, we're lucky enough to get for an interview uh, about his work with charter schools, which is one of the previous episodes. You're about to say something before I wrap up. I just want to say thank you. Uh, this is about the most civil conversation. I was just going to say. I have had. <laughs> we have not gotten into one argument. <laughs> Correct. And so I don't, don't laugh like that, but I will tell you well, something. Well, now we're going to get into an argument. Uh, now, I'm, so... ju I'm just going to say uh, you have honored me today tonight and I thank you for that and uh, you know it's extraordinary that a mother and daughter could sit here and have a conversation on what is so modern about this world, its history, its biography its technology, its wealth and uh, so I think we can be very proud of our heritage Yeah. and uh, uh, for where we are now Okay, thank you so much. Well, thanks for your time. And maybe we, what we've got is some very nice comments, uh, which I'll share with you. Somebody, uh, Jenny Maria Hatch, said, I'm an active Mormon. So thanks for sharing the story about the trek you took to hear the choir. And um, there are some nice comments here. Um, I have need to refresh this page, but um, I will share them with you um, uh, when we close you this. It, you should post a thing. Since then, I make a Marvel, I listen every Christmas and New Year Day, Marvel, listen. Oh, you, you listen All to the, oh yes, yeah, I know that's true. You do listen to the Mormon Tabernacle Choir every and Christmas. King's Choir. That's King's how Choir. I know about it because you have listened to that and the King's Choir. So that, so um, maybe we'll do another conversation on uh, the rise of America and why this has become a powerful civilization, maybe contrast it to other places in the world. But thank you very much. And we'll play out, I think, a song that you like since we started with Bob Dylan we will. We talked about the '60s and '70s primarily. Uh, maybe Scott McKenzie, uh, San Francisco. Yep. Thanks.
Such a strange vibration. Thanks for listening, everybody. I almost always forget. I almost always forget to tell people to subscribe um, to the show, Curiouser and Curiouser, and please let your friends know about it. I actually almost never say that, but uh, I think I should uh, ending or starting each show from now on. Um, and tomorrow we've got Ed Lynn, um, who is going to be joining us to talk about his latest mystery novel. He also has an incredible collection of live recordings of uh, amazing punk rock and alt shows. I can vouch for that because I've been with him to some of them, uh, to the uh, legendary CBGBs and places like that. So we will look forward to seeing you hopefully tomorrow and later on. Thanks for joining everybody. Take care.